Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. We're going to go right to Byron Stinson. I just wanted, as I introduce him, he's a Texas businessman, profoundly successful Texas businessman. He's one of these guys, like the layers of an onion. You keep peeling away and you keep finding more and more. Uh, when you meet somebody, sometimes you think you kind of know them. He doesn't self-promote at all, so he doesn't tell all these things. So you have to kind of ask questions. And as you ask questions, you probe and you find out, oh, my goodness, this guy's a lot more than I thought he was. He already was a lot. He's accomplished that, too. And then you ask more questions. You find, oh, he knows about that subject, too. And it's been quite astounding as I've just probed and kept asking him questions, the things I've learned from him. And we're going to next May, we'll be in Israel. And uh, we're going to have him do a teaching from Israel on live stream. And we'll talk to you more about that. But you're going to want to hear this guy from on site. What are you going to share right now tonight? So Myron Stinson, it's a joy to have you on from well half a year. You're in Texas and half a year you're in Israel, I guess. Or you've made, I don't know, 80 trips to Israel, whatever it is. But uh, if you will uh, start by just sharing with us about the birthplace of Jesus That'll be a real blessing. And then give us an update at some point on the Red Heifer. Then take us into this with some remarkable insights on the location of the uh, burial, crucifixion and burial of Jesus. Thank you, Byron Stinson from Texas, for being with the World Prayer Network tonight. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I just feel so blessed. I, I was able to get in early and, and listen to some of the prayers and enjoy the first part of this program and i just want to tell you thank you to everybody that's uh, involved and i do pray that what we share tonight is a blessing i want you to know that uh i have been working with the fathers of our faith jewish rabbis in the land of israel now for about 17 years it wasn't a plan that i had it was just the lord's plan to take me there and uh, as it turned out, I got to connect with uh, people that were archaeologists that knew the land, and they understood some things about God that uh, are really important for us to know. And I, so I'd like to start off. I've got a little bit of slides here that I'd like to talk about. The first one is, uh, it's about the perfection of God. You know, God is so perfect in everything he does. When I got to the land and I started looking at these different sites, especially Migdal Eder, but all over Israel, there's actual pieces of land where God has moved his hand on that piece of land over and over. I call it space repetition teaching. God is teaching us in the land itself, space between hundreds and even thousands of years events at the same piece of land so uh he does say he's done the same thing you know with our uh like the feast that he gave us so let's start off with talking about you know we got abraham abraham hears the lord and the lord says if you'll go to this land i'm going to give you this land so the land becomes the covenant it becomes the whole promise and the covenant that's not just the promise to the Jewish people, but it's the promise to anyone and everyone that wants to come back to God. And so Abraham comes to the land, and then we know the story that uh, whenever he's older, then he takes his son Isaac to the holy mountain of God, and he's about to 
to give Isaac up and, and give him to the Lord. Now, what that's called is an offering or a sacrifice. Now, there's just, there's several different kinds of offerings and sacrifices. You have an offering or a sacrifice that a man can give to God that is completely burned. You have an offering or a sacrifice that's given to the priesthood that the priest cooks the offering and hands all of it back to the man so that he can take it and share it with his family. Then you have an offering that's given to this to the priesthood that part of it goes to the priest and part of it's burnt to God and part of it goes back to the man that offered it. And then you have this type of sacrifice that's given that uh, is completely given to the priesthood so that they can take care of the poor and the needy. So those, th those offerings, uh, Jim, are the different types of offerings. So we have to look at the offering that Abraham was about to make. Abraham was going to make an offering that's a burnt, completely consumed offering to God. And what did God say? He said, no, I'm going to supply that. So I, I want to start off the show by letting everybody think about this, that the offering that Jesus became for us is not an offering of man to God, but it is the one and only offering that is actually from God back to man. So it is for, I mean, we know about the, the purpose of it as believers in Yeshua, but it makes such a difference because these different sacrifices and offerings that many of us in the Gentile faith and Christian faith don't understand are well understood by our fathers of our faith. And when we see these different sacrifices, they have a lot of meaning to us. So I want to pull that out right up front. We're going to get into the red heifer a little bit later. I'm not going to do that right now. But I want you to think about the fact that this red heifer has, has caught the world off guard, that a red heifer that would come from Texas to Israel has made everybody sit up and go, what is God doing? Are we about to build a temple? And what God's going to do with that is he, that's going to be his offering to mankind for a release of spirituality, of a release of returning back to the Lord. God is about, and I believe when he releases it, he's going to release the Holy Spirit in a greater way than we've ever seen. So I'm really excited about that. And I'm glad we're going to talk about that. But I just want to talk about that perfection of God. Now, as we move through, we know that in, in the, in the uh, there are seven feasts of the Lord. And in the Passover, there's these three perfect feasts that come at a perfect time. So let's talk about that real quick. We need to think about Moses, when he, when he was in the wilderness, he wrote this up and said he gave the exact dates on the lunar calendar that these feasts would be uh, held. And so we have the three feasts that come right at Passover. And it's at Passover that the lambs that had been held for one year and prepared to give purity from death, purity, uh, salvation, if you will, to the person for the from, through the Passover lamb. Those three feasts had to be done every single year, 1,500 years from the time Moses gave the command until we see Christ arrive. Now, if that's not perfection, that Christ arrives right there on that day, then God wanted us to know that he's so perfect that he went ahead on that date. And let's go to slide five. What he arranged was he arranged for there to be an earthquake. 
right then at that moment. Can you imagine when the earth, the, the plates of the earth were put in place so that when that moment came, when the lamb, when the time for the lamb to be sacrificed on that Passover, when Christ what became our Passover lamb, it was so important to God that at the flood of Noah, he set the, the, the very foundations of the earth in place so that there would be a there would be an earthquake right then. And if that's not enough for us to know the, the perfection of God, God was so kind to mankind to show us his perfection that he also went ahead and had there be an eclipse of the sun. When did God set up that eclipse so that it would happen at that very moment as Christ gave his life? Of course, we know it's whenever he set the solar system in place in Genesis. So God was trying to be very clear with us in his perfection about what he's doing. But here's what's happened to uh, all of us is whenever our Jewish fathers of the faith that had kept that lunar calendar, that had kept those facts and, and kept all that together, once they were taken out of authority, especially first you have the tribes of Israel that are scattered in 722, the northern tribes, and then you have the tribes of, of Judah and the scattered tribes amongst them that get taken to Rome. Then we see that there is this, this breaking down of the knowledge of the perfection of God because all of a sudden what happens is there is a shift into a, a new kind of calendar and we see the instead of Passover, we get into Easter. And and I love Easter. And Easter is a wonderful holiday, but it misses the impact of the perfection of God. And so those things kind of get lost on us out in the out in the world. And our Jewish fathers of the faith, they realize that we're missing that perfection of God. And it's their responsibility to hold on to that perfection. And to help us see it. Now, I know that's exactly what Rosemary was saying earlier. That it's been their uh, their duty. It's their calling to keep those things for us. And matter of fact, if we look into the scriptures, we see that what Paul did and the and, and the apostles they made a decision to require less of the Gentiles than was required of the of the Jewish fathers of our faith. And so they didn't. They, our apostle fathers and Paul did not give up the sacrifices. They did not give up the going to the temple. They did not give up the uh, Sabbath being on Saturday. They didn't give up any of those things because they knew that was part of their calling to keep that. And the point that I like to make to Christians worldwide is, is as we unify with the fathers of our faith, as we as the children scattered all over the world unify with the fathers of the faith we have to be appreciative of the fact that they've kept these perfect perfect things in place so that's 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 part of my uh spiel to the church is, is we need to come together so that together paul even said that can you imagine how much greater it will be once the natural tree and the grafted in tree become one tree together how much greater that'll be when all the eyes open on both sides and we have the fullness of everything that, that is revealed to all of us about what God's doing. 
And my friends, we're coming up on the moment in time when that's going to start really being revealed. But God is already doing that. He's already doing that in the uh, in the land itself. So before we go on, let's look at the perfection of God's holy mountain. It's not going to be halfway. There's just one mountain in all the world that God said is going to be the place where he's going to be honored. And so what we're looking at in this slide here, if you can see it, is at the bottom, you see the pool of Silwan uh, that's being fed by the Gihon Spring. And then you see Herod's temple, which is still the temple area of today. Uh, uh, and then what I like about this slide is it actually changes the color and you can see the pool of Bethesda. Now, one of the things that uh, in the perfection of God that we can that we can find out when we go to this pool of Bethesda that is uh, a bit striking to people when they see it. And I think some people doubt it, but I have no doubt of it. When you get to the pool of Bethesda and first off, let me talk about what the pool of Bethesda was for uh, as as the uh, sacrificial animals were about to be sacrificed on the temple mountain in the temple first the offering of the temple of the sacrifice the person would come with their with their lamb they would bring it to the pool of Bethesda uh, the Bethesda pools and the way they would bring it they would bring they would come from the south in this picture through the Kidron Valley you see where it says Kidron Valley it's also the Kidron Valley and is also the Garden of Gethsemane and they would walk their animals all the way up to the top to the lion's gate enter into the Bethesda pools at the lion's gate and there they would leave their sacrifice to be cleansed and prepared for the person that's going to for the offering or the person that's going to offer then that person needed to be cleansed by the water of the Gihon spring to be as clean as possible and pure so that person would have to go south all the way back down to the pool of Silwan where they would bathe clean themselves and take the steps of ascension that would lead all the way up and finally wound up it back at the temple and there you would meet your sacrificial animal that had been cleaned up but then cooked on the altar prepared for you and you were handed that that uh, that animal that the the cooked carcass and you would wave it in your hand you would raise it up to the air and wave it before the lord and say thank you father god for this that you have supplied and, and it's like a, a shadow over you it is a symbol between you and God that when he looks at you, he's looking through your offering at you. And the offering uh, makes you pure as you hold this offering above your head. I don't know if any of you, I'm, I know lots of you, when you are in worship and you raise your hands and you feel like the Holy Spirit come over you, then what, what you actually are holding at this is spiritually Christ himself. He is our sacrifice that is taking the, the, the eyes of the Lord and letting the eyes of the Lord see you through that sacrifice. That's why we have such tremendous feeling of hope and joy as we raise our hands and worship our Father because Christ is like our sacrifice in our hands. So 
that's what would happen here at the Temple Mountain. And then you would take your animal back down to your tent, back to your family, and you would enjoy the entire, the entire mount. So the reason I wanted to look at this uh, really carefully, we're going to be back to this at the end. We're actually going to look at this diagram once more. Of course, you can see the Dome of the Rock right in the center. But do you see, if you see over on the right, if you see that brown hill right there on the far right in this slide, the top of that, of that hill right there is right next to the Lion's Gate, which is also called the Sheep Gate, which is the way that the, uh, your sacrifice would enter into the Bethesda pools to be washed. And then your animal would be brought down towards the temple, which would have been to the right of the Dome of the Rock somewhere or around the Dome of the Rock, but probably a little bit to the right of it. And, and that is the place where you would come after you had gone all the way to the left and walked the steps of ascension, you would come back to your sacrifice right there. Uh, I just want to point out that hill on the right. That hill on the right is the very hill that St. Stephen was stoned at. This is where Paul stood and agreed with the stoning and held the coats of the stoners right at the bottom of that hill. For right at the bottom of that hill is where we find St. Stephen's church. And, and we know that this is the hill of stoning. It is a Golgotha hill. Let's talk about at Migdal Eder, let's talk about how God used spaced repetition at one place to show you his perfection, okay? So uh, you mentioned earlier that we see Migdal Eder the first time, it's in the book of Genesis, and we see that Jacob is making his way to Hebron. He has entered the land at a place called Gilgal, and there he had met with his brother, and his brother says, come on, I'll take you quickly to Hebron. And he said, no, my wife is, is pregnant, and I'm going to take my time and I'm going to make my way to Hebron slowly. So the way to Hebron from Gilgal is to come up by Shiloh, north of Jerusalem. And the little lines that you see are, the, are roughly where the ancient road, if you see leaving Jerusalem headed south towards Bethlehem, that's the ancient road. And so Jacob would have been on this road. Now, once again, I mentioned earlier that we lost a lot of the perfection of, of things when, we, when, the, when the Jewish people were taken into Rome and the Romans changed things like the, from Passover to Easter, these different things got changed. We went away from the perfection. One of those things that got moved is the actual city of Bethlehem. Now, the Bethlehem of today has been there since the time of Herod, but it wasn't probably called Bethlehem at the time of Herod. It may have been, but there was a problem with knowing where Bethlehem was. So you'll have to follow me. If you know the story of the destruction of the first temple, that's Solomon's temple, Solomon's temple was tore down in 587 BC by the Babylonians. So the Babylonians completely destroyed that. And at the same time, we see the story that they took the kings that were being born, the, king, the, the, the young princes that were in the line to be king, they took them and made them eunuchs. And they took the whole lineage 
to Babylon. Now we should stop and think about why did they destroy the temple and why did they take those that lineage? And I have a I have my own Byron Stinson thoughts on that that I want to share. But before I do, let's continue with what happened to the real Bethlehem, the Bethlehem of Boaz and Ruth. Because when the Babylonians destroyed that temple at 587 BC, they also destroyed to the ground the walls of Bethlehem of Boaz. Now I can tell you for sure that Bethlehem of Boaz had great walls around it. And the reason we know that is because in the story of Ruth and Boaz, what they do is they leave the site of the tower of the flock because at the side of the tower of the flock is where the threshing floor is of Boaz. They leave the tower of the flock and they, and Boaz goes to the gate of Bethlehem, and at the gate of Bethlehem, he makes the deal to take Ruth as his beloved wife and to redeem her line of her father-in-law. He is redeeming the line of Abimelech. Abimelech was the father of the kings who had chosen to go to to the far east to leave and leave this place and there he died and there his sons died and now no we see Naomi remove come back to Ruth and she comes back to this very place that you're looking at right now which is the hilltop known as 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 uh, the tower of the flock what you're seeing right in the center of this picture is the base of what's left of the Tower of the Flock. Now, if you look far in the distance on that hill, what you're looking at is that is the Bethlehem of Herod. And then it's also the Bethlehem where Queen Helena at 300 AD deemed that on the top of that hill was the birthplace of Christ and called it Bethlehem. But here's the problem with that Bethlehem being the right place. That Bethlehem never had a wall around it. So if it never had a wall around it, it never would have ever had a gate. And so Boaz wouldn't go to that Bethlehem. If we find the place where Boaz would have gone, then you're looking at the real Bethlehem from the line of Judah of Boaz. And so we, the archaeologists, did indeed find that place. And that place is actually at a, at a different site known as Ramat Rahel. Ramat Rahel is actually, instead of you're looking south in this picture, Ramat Rahel is actually the hill just north of this picture. So just north of this picture in the 1950s, Jewish archaeologists, after taking control of the land, they were doing digging up there and they found in the remains that they found of an ancient city up there, they found the capitals that were inscribed with the sign of Judah, 13 of these capitals that held up the rafters in the, in the palace. And they find the actual palace of King David there. It's the same exact stones that were cut by the Phoenician stone cutters that came down from Hiram and built the built everything that was built on the t on the holy mountain of God in Jerusalem. 
So we find those in the City of David archaeological digs and at Ramont Raquel, both places, we find the exact same stones to the exact same date cut by the exact same stonemasons. So we can know for sure that the Holy Mountain of God, Mount Moriah, and Ramat Raquel are Jerusalem and Bethlehem, the true Bethlehem of Boaz. Uh, so, as you spoke earlier, in Micah, it tells us, in the book of Micah, it tells us that there was a small place, a little small village. It says, oh, blessed are you, Bethlehem Ephrata, the smallest amongst the, the towns of Judea. Unto you shall be born this king that's going to be, that has lived forever, has always been alive and will always be alive. And so today, when you go down into the fields right below the tower of the flock, we find structures like this one you're looking at right here. There's, there's a lot of them because this was the city center. This is where the people lived and it still is standing today of where the people of Bethlehem Ephrata live. We can, uh, this is one of the shepherd watchtower bases in the fields of Ruth. And here is uh, Migdal Eder, evidence of the watchtowers in the shepherd's field. So this is another one that's starting to be collapsed, but we, this is another place where people live. If you look in the distance, you can see actually another one just a little bit further along. And here is actually, you can see inside and see a little bit of what it was like so you could get out of the weather. And by the way, when you see Mary coming and she comes to the end because she wants to get someplace private to have the baby, this is what was full. There were, there were her kinfolk were in here. They were staying in here and there were no places here in these, these places like this. So this one, you can see that the stone is not made with field stone but it has been carefully shaped and the face of every one of these stones has actually been rounded by very efficient stone cutters. And this is one of the major ones that's overlooking straight down in the field. And the field below that you're looking at is the shepherd's fields, a holy place that Solomon at first, well, this is where you see Ruth and we're gonna talk in layers here. First you see, uh, Abimelech, who goes to Moab with his family and dies, he's here, but he leaves here. Naomi comes back to this because it's her home place, and Ruth is gleaning wheat down at the bottom down here in these fields. And then uh, Boaz, who's above this at the threshing floor, is looking at her and says, leave extra gleanings for her. And so this would be one of the major uh, uh, towers that's still left there that point this out to us that this is uh, Migdal Eder area. This one here is not the Tower of the Flock, but it's one of the, the more important ones in the area. So later on, the, the, the tower, King Solomon, what he did here in this area was he set aside all of this because this was the family place. You got to understand that for Solomon, He's now the son of David, who is the son of Jesse, and David grew up in these fields, and now these fields were set aside so that they could have priesthood work these fields, 
and raise up the Passover lambs and the sacrificial lambs that people would be able to buy. They would make the oil here in this field. They would, the, the very menorah oil that we talked about earlier that they needed to produce for Hanukkah. They would produce the wine that was needed. They would produce the show bread for the table. And, and even the, the very living water would come from these well, from this field. There had to be water that came from a well here in these fields. And all these things were going to be done here at this place. So Solomon, being king over a mighty nation now, goes to this very small area called Migdal Eder, and there he cuts into the limestone a facsimile, something that is the shape of and, and built just like, pretty much like a tabernacle tent. It has an outer court area, it has a holy place, and then it has a holy of holy places. Now I want I'm, in this picture. I'm very I'm at the entrance into the outer court, and for many years the archaeologists that were looking in these fields, they believed that there had to be a well here for the living water because before the priest could enter into this structure, they would need to wash their feet and their bodies. They would have to wash before they enter into the work that they would do with the Passover lambs. But this rock was upside down until four years ago. And my son and I, along with a, uh, my friend Moshe, we were all in the field together. And my son Jordan says, Dad, that rock looks kind of funny. We flipped it over. And just if you see right there where my hand is, just there's a little indention there. That is where we believe the anointing oil, a little flask of it would sit there. And then you can see that the uh, rock is cut out into the shape of a foot because this would be where the priesthood would wash their feet. And you have to remember Solomon made all of this and it was in use all the way up to time until the time of Herod, it was in use. So here in these fields, there were, a thousand years of, of priesthood working here. And because there were priests in this area, there were many, many, many hundreds of artifacts that were left actually in the ground, buried here at this place. And, uh, and we'll get into that a little more about that in just a little bit. But those artifacts were found during World War II by an archeologist. Uh, named uh, Barosky, who actually uh, his his collection is uh, can be seen at not the collection from the Tower of the Flock, but his collection of other biblical artifacts can be seen at the Bible Land Museum, which is there in Jerusalem. So once again, here's the shepherd's fields. Uh, this is where Ruth and Boaz would come together. This is where the wheat would be raised. Uh, still a beautiful place on the hill on the right would go up to Herod's Bethlehem in the far distance you can see where Herod's Beit Sahur which is the house of merchants uh, where Herod uh, he, he had his priesthood that had shifted from these fields and were actually uh, busy down at Lachish raising up uh, everything that needed to go to Herod's temple. So once again, the perfections moved because you went from the house of David and you went from Judah 
and you went to a king who's not from Judah, he's Herod. And so he shifts everything away from the house of Judah. He shifts everything over into a system that is, is not the perfection of God. You know, God's in charge of all of that, we know, but that's what happened during the time of Herod. So hey, back Barbara, to- uh, just a clarification now. Yes. Um, the Migdal Ader, the Tower of the Flock, yes. referred to in Scripture, the Migdal Ader is the place where Jesus is born, correct? Yes. And so what you're showing us right here, this is the site where Jesus was born. Actually, so the, the hill on the right is the Bethlehem of Herod, but the hill on the left, and you go up the hill a little ways, you come to the site that was the very first one we showed uh, back at the beginning that beautiful little green field that's the that's what you get to if you go to the left and you go up the hill you'll come to the tower of the flock side now when will you uh tell them about the, the kind of the verification for this if i understand you properly is the two or three hundred artifacts or so from the site are you going to talk about that yeah i've got some slides a little bit further down we'll look at some of that okay. some of the larger artifacts as we keep going here so okay uh, before we do, though, let's remember that the whole purpose of what Solomon was doing here in these fields is it was all surrounded by preparing the lamb for the temple. And always remember that the Bethesda pools we talked about earlier were for washing the lambs and preparing the lambs for sacrifice. So there's this connection between the Bethlehem and Judah the real Bethlehem, and the temple in Jerusalem. By the way, I, I don't, if you, you remember when we started the show, you, you actually, there's two verses that look identical. Uh, Micah 4, 1 through 3, talks about how in the last day, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of all mountains, that people will come there from all over the world. So you see that in Micah 4, 1, 3, and then you see the same thing in Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. But I want to bring your attention to one thing. In, in Isaiah 2, 1, it talks, it tells you that you need this, this uh, message is about Jerusalem and Judea and Judah. So, and then we talk about the mountain of the Lord being where his temple is. But what's interesting is the message is not just to Jerusalem because that's what we think of as the mountain of the Lord. But this little mountain here is also the Lord's mountain. So he, he, both mountains is what God is, is, is going to reveal to the world as he reveals the true place of the birth of Christ here. And what you'll see in slide number 10, you asked me, Jim, about where is the birthplace of Christ. So this, what you're looking at right here, Jim, if you see in the center, you see there's a, a hole in the ground. Solomon cut that into solid limestone. Now, why would it be cut into the limestone like that? It's, it's, it, it is the size of the tabernacle tent. It is laid out directly from the east to the west like the tabernacle tent. 
It has the pure water in the east that you can wash your feet before you enter so that you can go in and do your work. And in the very far west was found a manger made into the limestone itself. And that manger had a place for two lambs to be cared for. So I want to tell you, and I want your audience to understand this, that you're looking at the very place where the shepherds were watching their flocks by night. And the angel showed up above them singing, glory to God in the highest, for unto you has been born this Messiah. And they were so amazed, but they were down at the very bottom of the field. Down, you see those those. Uh, structures I showed you are at the bottom of that valley right there. That's where they are. And they come up from the bottom of the valley and they come to the tower of the flock. And here is a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, which swaddling clothes, by the way, are not baby blankets. They are strips of cloth taken from the priesthood's robes that are wrapped around these lambs to protect them because they can't get a blemish for one year and they wrap them all up in swaddling clothes. And now they come, and rather than see, a ba see the two lambs of God for Passover, here is the Passover lamb and one baby laying in the very same manger. Now, that's why I wanted to start with telling you about the perfection of God. This story is too perfect for any man to make up. This story, when I heard it in 2007, I thought, this has to be, this can't be. But what I found out by all the other sites and all the evidence that came from this place is that with God, he's that perfect. He sets the stones in place to have an earthquake at the moment his son gives his life. He sets the stars in place to have a solar eclipse at the moment that his, that his son is going to give his life. And he set this place up by Solomon a thousand years before Christ is born at this very location. For And he takes the lambs for a thousand years that lay here year after year to be the, to be the satisfaction one year at a time for our, the hope of salvation and then delivers at the perfect moment in time the birth of our hope of salvation right there at the place you're looking at. And this is the place of Migdal Eder. Here at this place, and we'll leave the slide on here, we gotta realize Jacob came here. On the right-hand side, he buried Rachel here at this place in the tomb. He moved across to the left, he set up his tents and he mourned her here for a year. After that, Ruth and Boaz came to a threshing floor. On the left side of this picture, you see a low indention. That's the threshing floor where Ruth and Boaz slept together in that low impression right there on that threshing floor. Over to the left by the threshing floor are still the wine presses where the priest made the wine right here on this place. Right across the hill, over the hill, there are olive presses for them to get the oil that was needed for baking the bread. There's the ovens for baking the bread. And Jim, there is a monster vat just on the other side of this hill that it was set aside for catching the first crush of the olives so that they could catch the oil that was for the menorah that burned in the temple 
only four miles away from this location, and it's still sitting there today, made of solid limestone. Now, a lot of people don't understand the connection to the limestone, but let me give you, a, well, let me di just diverse just a minute. You know the story of Jesus' first miracle. He's in Cana, and they run out of wine, and the mother says, just do what he says, and so they bring the stone pots that then he turns the water that's in these stone pots into wine. Now, if you were just a poor pauper, if you were just from a family of poor people, then you wouldn't have stone pots because stone pots were very expensive and they were just for the exclusive use of the priesthood. And the priesthood had to have stone pots because Pottery would catch contaminations and anything you were going to do in priestly work had to be done in limestone because it can be purified. And so the Jewish archaeologists have found all types of things in, in limestone, even baby bottles have been found at the very side of the Tower of the Flock and, and cups made from stone. And everything was made of limestone because that's what you did for purification. And that is why. When you see a manger made of stone, it's also something that the priests were using. That's something you can say that was priestly because a common person wouldn't need to make a manger from stone. He could just make one to feed his animals and take care of his animals out of wood or other soft materials. He didn't need it out of limestone. But if you were priesthood, it had to be from limestone. These are things that the fathers of our faith understand. And they and so the, the story goes to a higher degree and uh, more fulfillment in our hearts when we see the truth uh, that Christ is born in this king's line, but also in the line of priests. Because the Bible tells us that after David established this place and Solomon went ahead and established and worked with him and established this place that the, all the sons of King David were kings and priests. So that lineage that goes all the way to Mary is a lineage of kings and priests all the way through. And so that gets you to Christ who's in the lineage of king and priest. So this is our lineage that we're following that has to be perfect because that's, way, that's the way our God rolls is imperfection. So that's what was happening at this site for a thousand years was that was going on until Christ comes and Mary goes to the places that we showed you all ago. They're full of people. They say, hey, a short distance away is it's not in use right now. The holy of holy place where the double manger is sitting is not in use. And the reason it's not in use is because Herod has forbade the house of Judah, the line of the kings, to continue their work of bringing the Passover lambs. Instead, he's, and it's not in this picture, but he is at his palace at Herodian, has his priesthood that are at Lachish, and they're making. Uh, they're preparing the lambs and they're bringing the lambs to that temple. Exactly. Byron, if I can just throw in just a couple of thoughts and pose yes. a question to you. Uh, first one, just FYI to everyone, uh, I, I did a sermon on Migdal Ader that I want to just make available to you. It's not nearly as good as what you're hearing right now, but I'm going to get it to you. 
but uh, it, it, it talks specifically in there about the fact that in the passage in Luke, the proper translation from the Greek text there is uh, not so much manger as birthing stall, a birthing stall. Uh, second thing is Mary, where had Mary been before the birth of Jesus? Who had she spent time with? And she spent time with her cousin, Elizabeth. Who, had, who was Elizabeth's husband? Zechariah. There were priests that took, took seasons of, of ministry in the temple. They had two weeks per year they ministered in the temple. One week and then six months later, another week. When they would come out of the temple, as Byron's talked about, they would tear up the priestly garments. They were never to be used again. And those became what were wrapped the, the lambs, called swaddling clothes. And so when the shepherds heard the word swaddling, these were just random shepherds. These were specially trained, highly sophisticated shepherds that were raising lambs for perfection to go six miles north to the temple, maybe five miles north. And so when they heard the words swaddling clothes, they knew where to go. They knew to go to the Migdal Eight or the, fort, or the uh, Tower of the Flock, because that's where the swaddling clothes were. But here, instead of a, a lamb, here is the Lamb of God, Mary. And we don't know for a fact, but it's presumably since she had been over at Ein Cairn, spending time with her cousin, Elizabeth, that they, it could have easily been uh, Zechariah's swaddling his cloth coming out of worship of the temple, could have been torn asunder. And that's where she had the swaddling cloths that, that, that Jesus, as the perfect Lamb of God, was wrapped in. Just a couple of thoughts. And Byron, now to a question. Uh, and if I ask a question, I recognize there's stuff that you know that you cannot speak about. So we respect that. And just if I ask a question, I shouldn't just say I'll pass on that one. The ownership of this land currently, or to what extent is this known? And all the artifacts from here that you're going to talk about in a moment that verify what you're saying. Uh, do you want to say anything about uh, the ownership of this land currently, or is it best to leave that untouched? I just submit that question to you. I, I'll be happy to talk about that. The Catholic Church actually has control of this site. Uh, when we got, uh, we did we did some favors through the Mereshit Foundation that I helped found in 2007. There was a problem in in the, right below the eastern gate in Jerusalem. The, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane was a terrible mess. It, it really was. So it was in a terrible, terrible situation. It had a lot of trash in it. it uh, the tombstones that were there uh, had been knocked over by people walking through there. We came up with a plan. There it is, through the Mereshit Foundation. We came up with a plan to clean the Garden of Gethsemane, and they, the Catholic Church, accepted that plan. We worked through the mayor's office and through a, uh, a company that set up to help uh, facilitate those types of uh, projects, called the East Jerusalem Development Corporation or PAMI. And we were able, if, if you look, if you're looking toward the Gold Dome, we're here on the Mount of Olives. We're actually taking this picture roughly from the place where the red heifer ceremony is going to be held and the garden of gethsemane is directly in the middle between the gold dome and the mount of olives that is where the garden of gethsemane actually is and we were able to go there with our foundation and uh, start a project that was uh, 3.4 million dollars put in some sewage and 
and beautify and fix all of that up. So, but after the it was all cleaned up and everything was done, we asked them for permission to actually be in and teach at the Tower of the Flock site. And that's how we've had permission to go in and explain to people uh, what is there in the fields below and up there on a slide 10, what's actually inside that, that rock wall that's the actual uh, base of the Tower of the Flock. I'm eager for you to go ahead and make the case why this is the actual birthplace, but you'll get the artifacts later. So go right ahead. Now you're looking at artifacts that came from the Tower of the Flock, Migdal Edu. And you'll see that the focus is, it's broken. It's, it's had a, it's, it's been moved, but what you're looking at with that spotlight is the manger that was cut out of the limestone and it had two, a place to take care of two animals. It's the only double manger like that that's ever been found. And then you also will see there were other artifacts. All these artifacts that you see came from that place and they speak to it being the birthplace of David and the birthplace of Yeshua at the exact same place because Yeshua comes from that line of King David. And you'll see there was an entry archway that was in use at that, at, in that area. See it at the back with the two lions on each side. To the right of that, you see a, that, that is a marble wash basin for cleansing the lambs. Those are some of the stones that were there for the living water to pour out. This is a gate that was there that you would enter into to get to the double manger. And there's another picture of the double manger. All of this, by the way, uh, we have it in a museum in Kansas and we're working towards opening that up so that people can come. If you look over on the left, you'll see that gate over there. It's hard to make it out, but I can tell you what's on the front of it is a menorah and it has the inscription of Jude or Jewish on it. And then above it, uh, you can see all of the, the uh, work that was done on that stone. So it was a stone that it's like the glory of God. It's, it's like the seashell glory of God uh, carvings that held that gate in place. So all of those things were able to be saved from that site. During the time, long, long before it was Israel, when, the, when it was still Jordan, and it actually was under, uh, the Germans actually had a lot of uh, control of the site. That's when these artifacts uh, were taken out of there. I don't have the whole story of how these artifacts <clears throat> got moved it, from, the, from that time until 2007. I can tell you, I had become friends with these uh, very influential Jewish friends of mine that had control of these artifacts, they asked me if I would protect them by storing them in one of my barns on my farm. And so we did that from 2007 to 2014. I can tell you that we kept these artifacts. Some of the things that's included were uh, bronze swords that were David's fighting men's swords. We had 60 of those. And the museum is just full of a full truckload of artifacts like this that came from the Migdal Eder site. 
uh, guaranteeing that that is the actual site where Christ was born. And it's all about to be revealed, and you're one of the very first ones to get to actually see and hear all of this. And just glad to be sharing it with you. And my, I was a, my wife and I have been privileged to go and actually see them for ourselves. I could hardly believe it. And so we saw them ourselves and got a thorough explanation. And, and Byron, I, I get, it's kind of a shock to people. You're, we're here, we are in Bethlehem, Migdal Ader. And then next sentence you say, these are all stored in the state of Kansas. So at some point, uh, will they be open to the public at some point? That's the plan. We, we, the, our organization is called Build Israel. It's Bonet Israel. And uh, our focus in bringing the red heifers is to wake up the world, help people see that in this ceremony, I believe what God's doing through this is bringing a higher purity to the priests so they could start and there would be an urgency to rebuild the temple. And the temple, when it's rebuilt, uh, this is going to wake up the whole world to wake up and look at the Bible and look at these stories. I believe with the power of the Holy Spirit on that, you're going to see a revival worldwide when these things are understood. I believe that's why God is revealing this. You know, one of the stories I love is Jeremiah. He already knows that uh, the house of Judah is about to go into exile, the leadership into Babylon. And he's told by the Lord, buy a piece of property, take the deed, put it in a pot and bury it so that it'll be found later on. Yeah. <laughs> And we, we know that, for instance, the Dead Sea Scrolls were hidden just as Israel, just as Judah is falling. Uh, and then it's those, those Dead Sea Scrolls are recovered in, in 1947, just as Israel becomes a nation again. I mean, all these things are not by coincidence. God and his timing reveals these things. They couldn't be revealed to us right now, except God is ready. That should shake us all up to know God is ready. And when he, when that temple is built, we're a short distance away. Everything's in place. The people are back in the land. The temple is built. The sacrifices will begin again. They, we know they'll begin again because the Antichrist comes in and stops those daily sacrifices. All, when those things happen, the coming of the Messiah is right at hand. So we're getting close. And uh, these are all signs of that, Jim. We're looking at the path from Jerusalem east to the Mount of Olives. So if you look, uh, if you look to the right, you see the, you see the, uh, that's where Bethany is. Now, one thing that was always interesting to me was John the Baptist was baptizing at Bethany on the far side of the Jordan River, but Lazarus was living at Bethany on the backside of the Mount of Olives. So don't get, don't get those confused, but it's interesting that God used that same name in two different places that are so significant. So we see Christ revealed to the world by John the Baptist, who is the cousin of Jesus, who calls him the Lamb of God because he knew he was born in the manger as the Lamb of God, he reveals him at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan River. But where does, where does Christ rise into the sky? 
with the disciples watching you leave, that's at Bethany, which is on the right side of your screen here. And the re really interesting thing is that is also right next to Scapegoat Mountain, that Bethany. So Christ came for not just the Passover lamb, but also the scapegoat is what I see in the fact that he left like the lamb, like the scapegoat, he's the released. You see him leave, but you don't see what happened to him. Here at Bethany, Christ leaves. And then the angel says, why are you standing there looking up in the sky? Don't you know when he comes back, it's going to be like a flash and he's going to come right back the same way he left. So don't ever fall for a Messiah that's born of a woman be, or a man that, that grew up somewhere born in Indiana. He's going to show up in the sky in a flash and he will be here and we, the whole world will see him come and take his place as the king to reign at this temple mountain, to reign here at this very place and give us those instructions that, that we see in Micah 4 one through three and Isaiah two, two through four. But as you go forward, if you leave in Bethany and you go by past Beth Page, then you just keep going, see how there's kind of a straight line. And just before it starts getting squiggly down there, it says the Garden of Gethsemane. At the very same height of the temple, right next to that red line is the exact spot that uh, the Lord allowed our foundation, Bonet Israel, to buy a piece of land on the Mount of Olives 12 years ago. Now, that's not something that ever comes available. It's very contentious, but if God's ready in his perfection, he hands it to you. And so our foundation, Bonet Israel, was blessed with us with the site, the perfect site for the red heifer ceremony. And then, Byron, don't go by that one too fast. That's just so significant. Folks, what you heard is a miracle. You can't buy land on the Mount of Olives. If you could, it's unbelievably expensive. And there's political repercussions that makes it very almost dangerous. And so he, what he has just said is stunning. And that location, I hear you correctly, Byron, yes. is the right altitude yes. uh, and the right exact same direction yes. from the actual uh, original temple. Yes. And so the, the, even the altitude, the slope up the hill, the altitude of that property is very significant in addition to its uh, direction east uh, or north-south. It has to be at an exact place to be the place of the sacrifice of the red heifer. Yes. Now, pick it up from there if I'm correct on that. This is roughly what will be in place for the red heifer ceremony. It'll probably look different, quite a bit different than this, but this is the idea. It's you see the bridge is level because we're at the same height. The ceremony happens at the same height as the temple itself. It's due east from the temple. And you can see right in the temple from the Mount of Olives. And it's crossing through the Garden of Gethsemane, going straight to the temple. And one thing to, that uh, I learned through all of this, there's a lot to the Red Heifer ceremony. We don't have time to go into all of it. but those arches, what they are is to guarantee that there is air between where the priesthood would priest, these young priests have never been around death. 
these young men that are going to do the ceremony were not born in hospitals because people die in hospitals. They have never been to a cemetery because of dead bones. They have lived their whole life in like upper floor. So there's always air between there. The, they, they got to keep nine arm links away from a dead bone to be pure enough to then take the ceremony of the red heifer and, and produce this pure water, this purity water that comes from the red heifer ashes and the other things that go into it so that this water can be sprinkled on the other priests and on the people and on the tools that are going to make the, the temple. And it's for purity. Everything's about purity. And we know who brings purity and what this represents. All of these images are like mirror images that we need to understand. God told Moses, write it perfect because you're copying the heavenly things here on earth. And then he gave it to the Jewish people to keep these things for us. So there are things in here that we need to be willing to, we don't have to give up our faith in Christ. Our faith in Christ should grow through all of this because it, Jesus said he did not come to do away with the law, but he came to fulfill every bit of the law. And so this red heifer ceremony, my friends, is in the law. And that is why the fathers of the faith, even though they don't really fully understand why God put this in the law, they're doing it based on faith that God said do it. So we're going to do our best to have this red heifer ceremony right just as just as it's prescribed to have it. So this is the site that's been given. <clears throat> this is where we're moving. What we want is we want people from all 70 nations to come, be in Israel, partake of this. God is already moving hearts and spirits of people from different countries, all the way from Papua New Guinea to Samoa to the Philippines. The islands are crying out to the glory of God. They all want to come and be part of this ceremony. And it's just opening up for us as after we got the red heifers there, this thing is opening up. So it's happening, my friends. It's, it's coming around and, uh, and all this comes together, then we'll see the ceremony could happen uh, along, around Passover or possibly Shaviot of uh, 2024. <clears throat> the cow will be of age so that could be done. This is a picture of- the What age do they have to be, Byron? They have to be in their third year. In other words, they, 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 have, to, they have to be two years plus a month. So they have to be in their third year before you could have the ceremony. There is no, they time out after three years. As long as you keep them pure red, as long as they're not have used for any kind of work, as long as they're not been bred back and been around bulls, uh, don't have any bad, they don't have any scars that don't heal, holes in their flesh, uh, any kind of blemish like that, then they can be used as they get older and by the way you're looking at a picture of uh one of the ranches we had cows come from two different ranches in texas we looked at a hundred a lot of more ranches and but we wound up these two ranches had the reddest and best cows and the people that owned the ranches were the most cooperative and wanted to work with us and knew their bible and <clears throat> matter of fact these cows on this ranch were raised specifically because the rancher loved the story of the red heifer 
back in the 1990s, and he got the reddest bulls he could find and the reddest cows. And I can tell you personally, I've inspected them, and we have some of the cows on their farm that are up to five years old, and they're still completely red. This is where they're working the cows in the chute. Uh, we had to give them medicines. We had to make sure that they were uh, get tested to pass all the rules and regulations to be able to export them and send them to Israel. This is one of the videos where we were, this, some people thought we were kind of mean to these cows. This is one of the, one of the uh, cows that, that we were taking care of. This is one of our cows and, and uh, they just petted on, they just loved these cows. So this is a, a, a collage. On the bottom right, you'll see four rabbis. These are four of the rabbis that uh, Bonet Israel flew in from Israel to actually do the inspections once we felt like we had found perfectly red cows. And we had 18 to inspect that day. And uh, out of the 18, we were able to uh, find 10 that we felt were perfectly 100% red and qualified as our red heifers. Uh, there's some pictures of them right above that after they got to Israel. And then uh, you see in the top middle, you can see where this is the crate that the cows, they came in <clears throat> on a jet directly from JFK to uh, Tel Aviv to Ben Gurion. They came in that crate and uh, it says on the side of it, it says cows. <laughs> but we, we imported them, actually, there's an embargo about shipping cows in from the United States to Israel. But they, we were able to find that you can bring pets in. <laughs> so these were five pet cows that we brought from the United States on American Airlines. You'll see in the top left. And uh, landed them there in Tel Aviv. And then down the bottom left, that we're standing at the actual site of where the red heifer ceremony will be at the exact height of the of the temple. And then another picture at the bottom of all the red cows. We had more of them than five. We just couldn't bring more than five. And then this is them in Israel. Uh, just took this picture just before I about a week ago. Uh, took this picture before we left. They're very protected. It's heavy, heavy metal around them. Good food. It had rained some that day, so it looked kind of wet right there. They're not normally wet like that, but it had a big, it, you know, Israel doesn't have a lot of rainfall, but it had a huge rain just before I went up there and saw them. They're still all red. They're still looking good. And uh, they got about a year and a half to go. So we just need one <clears throat> out of the five to stay all red. And what you're seeing here now, we're kind of jumping back to the, the, the Tower of the Flock, the Migdal Eder, and to the whole story of Mary. Now, what, and I've brought this up several times. So let me just back up and, and make this really clear to you. From the book of Genesis, we see that Judah gets a blessing from Jacob that he will have the scepter in his hand and he will have the rod between his feet. So the scepter means he's gonna be the king <clears throat> and the rod between his feet means he's also gonna be the priest. As a matter of fact, a Messiah is, that's what a Messiah is, he's king and priest. 
So we see the house of Judah is going to have that. But they also under, they understood that there was a promise of a kingdom on earth that was going to be a kingdom for a thousand year reign on earth where the humans of earth find out the ways of God in a deeper and more meaningful way that's that that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven and that this kingdom would come and there would be no wars and there would be peace on earth and they believed the first Jewish people were telling people that was what was going to happen because it was written in the Bible who didn't like that first off was Nebuchadnezzar you remember he was in Daniel's dream at, it's actually Nebuchadnezzar's dream that Daniel interpreted the king Nebuchadnezzar was like the golden head of the statue he's the first kingdom that comes against this kingdom of God and they come to destroy it and to stop that kingdom from being set up but they didn't stop it because then it continues with the rebuilding of a second temple and then you see the Medes and the Persians come against it and then and you see the Greeks come against it that's all in that same uh, story in Daniel when you're looking at that statue and then you see the Romans come against it and the Romans had no interest and see a kingdom that's run by Jewish people <clears throat> by the house of King David and run from Jerusalem. So they come to destroy all that. And in fact, they decide, the Romans, that they're going to be the kingdom over all the earth. So they might as well just kill all the Jews. And when they couldn't kill all the Jews, they tried to force convert them into becoming Christians rather than staying Jewish. And they couldn't get it done. And then you keep going and you see all these nations, some of them weak and some of them strong, trying to build this one world government. And we see the start of that being at the time of our friend Hitler, who's not a friend to anybody, who's horrible, who once again wanted to set up the kingdom over the whole earth under him and not see the kingdom of God come. Now, remember all this time that our leader, Yeshua, Jesus, says, pray that this kingdom will come and God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so that's what we need to be praying for yet today, that that's about to happen. It's enough times that nations have come against Israel and knocked it down and tried to destroy the plans of God to start this kingdom. But the time has come in the, in the, in the dream that, that Daniel interpreted in the last days many nations some of them weak some of them strong are trying to negotiate work together to have a one world government and and they don't want to see this kingdom of god come that's with the head of it at jerusalem being the head being the house of judah reigning from the temple mountain in jerusalem and they're fighting against it but the good news is in the book of Daniel, Daniel's getting a lot of information that he shared with us and we can glean a lot from that and many people have. But the, what I like about the last part is Daniel's asking for more and God says, that's enough. Now you go to your sleep, Daniel, you sleep, but you're gonna wake up and have a full portion in the last days. So any of us that have been chosen to be priesthood and are truly the Lord's, we get to reign with Daniel as priesthood in this thousand year millennial reign. 
I can't explain to you how God does that or how he's going to do that, but I can explain that that was the promise that he gave us. And that's the promise he gave to Daniel. And I can see by the fact that he exiled the Jewish people out of the land, but as he promised, brought them back to the land, established them there by the fact that all these artifacts are now confirming everything that God says. I can see that this is going to happen. You see Nazareth on the slide. What you never hear about, or very few people hear about, is, is called Zephori or Zephyrus on this map. It's about four and a half miles from Nazareth, where Nazareth is just a little sleepy village at the time of Christ. Zephori had about 400,000 people, and it was the center of trade from everything from the Far East would come to Zippori, and then you would have leaders come from Egypt and from all over the world and meet the products. And there they would come together and they would bargain over and make trade deals at, Z at Zippori. But it was more than that. It was a city of great trade that connected the house of Judah and gave them power to people like the Egyptians. But it was more than that. It was the place that was chosen by David to have a, a contingency of the priesthood from his line learn at this location all of their jobs and what they were to do at, at the Bethesda pools and at the temple. And the teaching center has been discovered there. We can go there, it's like just like a uh, tabernacle tent. It's laid out from the east to the west, everything the same as like at Migdal Eder, and, and this was where Mary, being from the royalty, was from this area. Joseph was from the Nazareth, and he also is from the line of King David, but a lower line. But he winds up being betrothed to Mary, who's at the top of the line. She's in the, she's like the top of royalty for the house of Judah, which was under pressure because of Herod because of what Herod was doing, but that is who she was. And that is who, when we get back to the perfection of God and we understand this, and the Jewish people do understand this, then, then we can see <clears throat> this connection and how it moves into many things. And I like to teach on site there at Sephora. So I hope maybe we can go there and look at a lot of things when we're together in May. And, and be able to see what happened there at support. Make sure you can go, if you can go on this trip, you need to go. It's gonna be great in May. So, okay. Byron, before you leave, before you leave Nazareth support, the, the, why was Mary, who is high royalty, say it one more time, why is she up in this little dinky nondescript town, very small in population, not even a wall around it? What was she doing up there if she was such high royalty? So this, picture is taken from basically the Bethesda pools. You're looking at the Garden of Gethsemane and at the Mount of Olives on the other side. What's the thing that you have to understand is that Mary's lineage started and was rooted at the very location where this picture was taken from. This, this is the birthplace of Mary. This is where her mother, Anne, was at this location that you're look from, that you're looking from. This is where they were washing and preparing the lambs of God at this exact location. 
And that's why Jesus felt so comfortable right there below you. You see the garden area. The green area is the garden. And that's the Garden of Gethsemane. The church that you see right above it, that's where there's a rock. And what the Bible tells us, Jesus was down in the garden with his disciples and he pulled a short distance away to a rock and he prayed there and left his disciples to pray in the garden. And we believe that truly is, that the Catholics got that right. That truly is the rock of agony where Christ was praying. And, uh, And then to the left, what you can't see, you see there's kind of a white road there, but to the left, what's there is that is where Mary was buried in a tomb. You know, she's not buried in the holy mountain of God, and she's not buried in the Mount of Olives. She's married in, she's buried in between. And it wasn't because she was Catholic, because nobody cared about being Catholic at the time she died. It was because she was from the high order of the kings of Judah, that she had the authority, and this was her home place. The Garden of Gethsemane was home to Jesus, to Mary, to Mary's mother Anne, to her father, to Joseph of Arimathea, who was her uncle. This was the place where they still had power. Herod had power at the far south side of the city and at the temple, but the house of Judah was still preparing the lambs here at the Bethesda pools, which are connected directly here to this side. If you look at Herod's temple, you see the pool of Bethesda. That last picture we were just looking at was taken just to the right of where it says pool of Bethesda, looking across at the mountain of olives. And halfway in between in the Kidron Valley, that is where Mary's tomb was placed and where it is today. And you can go visit Mary's tomb there. Now it's been venerated by the Catholic church And so it's very ornate, but it was just a basic rock tomb that was put into the very floor of the Garden of Gethsemane at the time that Mary's death. So that's significant that shows the power she and her family still had at the time of her death. When we say all of that, we got to realize that that this is the source of power. This is the place of power for the kings of Judah is right here at the Bethesda Pools and up at the Lion's Gate. Herod had all the power down at the Pool of Silwan and all the way up to the temple, but there was a battle between them at this time. And then Jesus shows up and by his actions tells everyone that he's the king, or he's about to tell everyone he is the, has, is the rightful king because he comes from the right line. He's done the miracles. And they're begging him as he enters, please tell us you are the Messiah. If you'll just tell us, we're going we're gonna to riot against Herod. We're going to give you the whole Temple Mountain. We're going to make you king right now because they still knew the story that this king's going to come from the line of David and he's going to reign. And they were ready right then for that to happen. But instead, what happens is God was ready to give his son perfectly at the lion's gate, right next to the lion's gate as a sacrifice. So now you're at the Mount of Olives and you're looking back at the Temple Mountain. And once again, we started with this over on the right, you see that brown hill, that high hill, that's bedrock. And it's right next to the Bethesda pools. And it's right next to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And it's the place where Stephen was stoned from there. And it's just outside the gates. And these walls uh, where the temple stood were much lower at that time. And there's a story that we read in the Bible that we can pick up and learn something from. The centurion was standing next to Christ as he's being crucified. And we see an earthquake and we see the solar eclipse and we see the the curtain in the temple is rent in two. And all that's told about. And then the centurion says, surely this was the son of God. Well, if he, if he was going to see that temple rent, the, the curtain rent, it has to be from this location. Okay, because you can't see it from the place Queen Elena picked out. And then you and I love the garden tomb and it's beautiful, but you can't see it from there. But from this location, which is absolutely the hill of stoning where Stephen was stoned, you could see that Centurion could have seen the curtain rent to during the earthquake. Now, right below that brown, if you kind of go down and to the left, <clears throat> at the base of that brown hill right there, there is a tomb. That is a second temple tomb that is hewn into the holy mountain of God. Now, why is that significant? It's because no one except someone who is a king or going to be a king in the line of Judah was ever allowed to build a tomb into the holy mountain of God. If you weren't from the king, if you weren't going to be king or in the king's line, you could be buried on the Mount of Olives close, but you could not be buried on this mountain. So we know for sure that that second temple time tomb was prepared for someone who was in the line to be king of Judah. I believe that's Joseph of Arimathea, who ran the garden, which was the Garden of Gethsemane. And there's, there are archaeologists have found signs here at this site that verify that. This is a second temple time tomb that is just sitting there with trash and junk in it at the base of that brown hill, and it's empty. And it had to be made for a king of Judah because that's the only ones that would have been allowed to actually put a tomb into that mountain. So we're going to pan up, and we're going to look up that brown spot up high and we're going to look at the place of the crucifixion which is right up there to the left and then we're going to pan across to the mount of olives across saint stephen's church and down in the garden of gethsemane it's all right there together the story is much more concise at exact pieces of land we're, we're talking about the place where isaac was brought uh, this is where the temples were built. This is where the lambs were prepared for God. And it's, and it's Jesus' family preparing the lambs of God, and he is the lamb of God. He's born in the manger as the lamb of God. He is given his life at this very same place to be our sacrifice and laid in this tomb and then arose triumphantly three days later for all of us. This is the, what I believe is the place
of the crucifixion and the tomb. This is about our organization, which means the building up the Holy Land, Bonet Israel. And it's an organization that connects Christians who love Israel. We work as a team of people all around the world, right on the ground in Israel. Together, we're protecting biblical sites, educating believers around the globe, supporting projects that prove and bring evidence of the Bible's truth and ancient prophecies being fulfilled through our work. And uh, please pray for us as we continue to do this work. We've been doing it now since 2007. We have other sites, uh, things that we didn't even talk about. We're actually starting a visitor center at Gilgal, which is where the angel of the Lord is stationed. We have a, uh, we just uh, made an agreement with the ancient Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle tent stood 370 years. They're going to build a education center for the red heifer, a place for uh, people that come to Israel to be able to come and actually see the red heifers and understand that. And so uh, the government, thankfully, is involved in that and going has already given us some money to uh, get all of the plans together. And they've set aside uh, several dunams of land for us to build on there at ancient Shiloh. Uh, that's really exciting. And there's other projects that we're working on too so we kind of we, we kind of have our hands full a lot of <laughs> a lot of things so we need uh any help we can get from uh, from volunteers to prayer warriors to people that financially have the ability to help us uh make these things come to life uh and the team is strong and doing a great job it's a mixture of christians and jewish working together i want to finish with this one last thought in the book of malachi at the last, this last book of our Old Testament, and in the last chapter, in chapter four, towards the last verse in chapter four, God gives us a warning. He says, if the fathers and the children don't love each other, there's going to be a curse on the land. My friends, the land is the subject of the promise. We don't need a curse on the land. Now, some people think that fathers and children means that I need to love my children. My, I love my children. My children love me. And uh, sometimes we get a little mad at each other, but in all, we love each other. But it's to me, it's talking about the fathers of our faith who have kept all of these things for us. Without them, we wouldn't have what we have. And then the children of the faith scattered all over the world that are hungry for more spiritual fulfillment through those things that the fathers of the faith have kept for us. And we are commanded to love each other, to come together. And these projects are the perfect place for us to meet, to get to know each other, to learn to trust each other, to, and to uh, honor our same God that we both love. And, uh, and in the end, Yeshua, is who I believe will reveal himself as Messiah. I don't have to protect him. He's plenty strong to protect himself. All I have to do is just love the fathers of the faith and work with them and love you and do what Jesus told me to do. And that's to pray for all the world, that none would perish, but all would have eternal life, that all could find that redemption through the blood of the Lamb. Byron, that was just incredible. Uh, obviously we're going to have you have to have you back and then we'll be talking to people about how they can sign up to uh, be with us on that may 2 or even by live stream how they can uh, kind of uh, we'll have sort of a subscription service of some kind 
so they can be a part of that uh, that trip in May. Yeah, it's May, um, Saturday, May 6th, we depart the United States. And 14 days later, we return on Friday, May 19th. But during that time, we're going to visit Nazareth, Sephori, um, these very locations that that you could be a part of something as exciting as as finding the discovering the Dead Sea Scrolls, because all of this is happening in the year of Jubilee. Places are not just places in the Bible. Dates are not just dates. Everything is of eternal significance. And there's not a lot of things you can take with you into eternity from this life. But your pilgrimage you can take. Your journey to the land of Israel is something that is so valuable. It's a crown and a reward. And the Lord reopened tourism after about three years of it being shut down. We are so excited. When we went in October, we were amazed that Israel did not stop one step. Even though things were shut down, they continued to expand, to build, to uncover, to enhance, to improve. And everything was better than ever. So it was very exciting. Plus, we're going to stay at Ramat Raquel, Kibbutz Ramat Raquel. This is a very spectacular location. You are really going to reside in the Holy Land for 12 spectacular days. And we have about 25 places left on our tour. So go to wellversedworld.org. Go to events and then go to Israel Tours. And you can um, see all the details. There's much more that we can't put in print, but call us, contact us, and we're, we welcome all of our World Power Network warriors, participants, and um, well-versed family to join us in person and to join and meet Byron and see what, what the Lord is going to have next for us in these exciting days. I asked one question on Friday night when I was uh, Rosemary and I were talking to Byron. I asked a question of both Rosemary and Byron. They, they gave you a quick answer. So I'm going to ask a quick question. I want quick answers like you did Friday night. Same answers if you remember. And then we're going to go to four people who are going to pray about 45 seconds each and then wrap this up. So be prepared. Mary Beth, Suzanne, Ned, Stanley, if you will unmute right now, be prepared to do brief rapid fire prayers one after another very quickly as we got to close out. But the question I ask is why? Why, after 2,000 years, are we potentially just now knowing the actual birthplace of Jesus and the actual crucifixion and the actual burial of Jesus? After 2,000 years, why now? Why so long? And Byron, when I ask you that question Friday night, what did you say? Well, brother... <laughs> I, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't remember my exact word. Could you give me a hint? <laughs> yeah, I sure will. Yeah. You, quoted, you quoted, the rocks will cry out. Yes, okay, all right. So thank you so much. I'd, uh, I'd slept since then. <laughs> that is exactly what we see in this, that all over Israel, not just here, but everywhere in Israel, the rocks are crying out to the glory of God. And my friends, there's one thing for sure. Those rocks might outcry somebody else, but they're not going to outcry Jim and Byron. <laughs> We're going to scream as loud as we can. And, and, and I know all of you are going to do the same thing. Let's cry to the glory of God as we go and we see what these rocks have to say.
Yeah. And what did you say when I posed that well, question? Do you I, remember? Yes, it's the time of the restoration of all things as prophesied. And so and we're honing back in to the very location where Messiah came the first time and where he ascended into heaven and where he's returning. We're we're gearing for the goal of the target of God. And we want to be there on the front row of this spectacular moment of his return, of his coming, when all Israel will be saved. Because look now how much they're able to share with us that has been has been failed from us for 2,000 years. But as we come and work together and we, as, as um, Christians, join and become the note stream, the watchers, the workers, and help rebuild Israel, planting the vineyards like the Waller family, bringing Jacob's sheep like Jenna Lewinsky, uh, redigging the places, uh, the holy place like Shiloh, we work with Lipkin Torres there in Ophra. They're right on in the biblical heartland, and they uh, are pro promoting a, a Joshua's altar, and we go to all those sites too. So you are invited. There's there's never been an easier time. More even though it's expensive, it's most economical. In less than a day, you can be in Israel. You can fly in the most comfort and travel air condition in the most beautiful hotels and the most holiest beautiful of locations on all the earth and it's available to you in your lifetime it's worth every single penny you would invest in it because the blessing comes to you and your entire household will be saved only in 1990 did they discover joshua's <laughs> altar 3400 years 1990 <laughs> then they discovered the gilgals we don't have time to talk about that aaron lipkins talked about this once before warfare network I didn't even know Byron was involved with the Gilgals. You need to hear what the Gilgals are. It's un unbelievable. Gilgals is not just a town. It is an actual footprint of God. It's amazing. And we go to this place, and here's this beautiful fortress being built. I found out Byron's the guy who built the thing. His footprint is all over Israel. It's astounding. So he's going to be with us on that trip. We're going to do some, well, do a, some kind of a subscription service. I don't know how to do it. Byron, Rosemary and I just came up with this idea a couple nights ago. Hey, let's try to figure and out Robert, a way to Robert, Robert, so yeah, great. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that Wellversed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Don't forget to hit subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Leave us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Thank you for listening to the Well-Versed Podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.